turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. I'm Dave Householder, blessed to be your Bible teacher, and very excited to get you into the Word today. It's amazing how we were reading through the Bible and teaching through the Bible verse by verse, which we do here at the well how the Lord has so much bandwidth to line this up with what's going on around us. We're going to talk today about where to meet meeting places, and it has to do with Stephen's speech in a big way. Today, after our service, the Methodists will be meeting across the way to vote as to whether or not to leave their denomination. Their denomination wants to close them down so they can sell the property and make money. And I invite anybody who wants to, to gather here in the chapel to pray over that issue. And it is an issue which is very important in America. Where do we meet? And this is a lot deeper issue than you might think. It has a lot to do with this Bible passage today. So Acts 6, verses 13 and 14. People have met in big churches, little churches. I have a picture of the Crystal Cathedral there a little white pointy church out on the prairies, meeting in homes, meeting in all kinds of places. What's God's will for our meeting? And how do we make that happen? As Kim said, it's all about Jesus. So how do we gather so that we can move the message of Jesus forward? Acts 6, verses 13 and 14. The reason I'm going back to this passage just for a second is to remind you what's happening in this Bible passage. Stephen... Stephen the deacon, Stephen the person waiting on tables, Stephen in charge of food service. Turns out he was spirit-filled and powerful. So he started moving in the spirit and doing acts of power. And he became a bit of a celebrity in Jerusalem. And the religious authorities were coming down on him. The religious authorities were called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had two big accusations against Stephen. And here they are. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple, the meeting place, and against the law, the Torah of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So what are their two accusations? One is that uh, Stephen is off base in criticizing Moses and he also is anti-temple. Those are the two big accusations. You might think, well, that's just theological hair splitting. But the truth is all of Jewish life revolved around Jerusalem, revolved around the temple, and their lifestyle took on the pattern of the Torah. And so basically he's calling into question the entire culture, the entire society, and that would be called in any society treason. You call into question the basic idea of a country, and you start to question those things. They're accusing him of treason. And to this day, treason in the United States is punishable by death. It's a capital offense. So he's being accused of that. So last week we talked about the Torah and Moses and his teaching. And basically he made a good point last week that he was following Moses better than they were that he got the heart of it. As Kim was singing, he got the heart of Moses. Uh, He got the heart of his teaching, which was called the Torah. The Torah comes from, the word Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And Torah comes from the verb, which has to do with archery practice. In other words, the Torah is there to help us get closer to the mark. This is why you gather here on Sunday mornings. You hope that something will nudge your life in the direction of the bullseye of life. We all want to live a life that hits the target. And for that, we need weekly reminders of that or daily reminders of that if you get into the Word. And what Stephen is saying, that's what the Torah is all about. We read a bit of the Torah and we try to get our lives closer to God. He says, hey guys, Sanhedrin, I get that better than you do. So he knocks off the whole, knocks off the whole Moses critique and now he defends what he thinks about the temple. So, Stephen's response is called an apology, not in the sense of 
saying you're sorry. Apology in the sense of having a defense legally. First, he quoted Abraham. Then he quoted Joseph. Last week was Moses. This week is the temple. And it has to do with our gathering space right here and what the Methodists are voting on and how we gather and how we focus on buildings and what buildings do. Buildings are both a faith statement and a problem. They're a plus and a minus. They're a minus because first we build our church buildings, we shape them, and then they shape us. Try moving something in a church after it's been a certain way for a while. I tried to move a banner at one church, which will remain unnamed, which some of you know about, and someone yelled at me saying, that's a permanent banner! So these things can happen. The good thing about churches is churches are also a faith statement. If you say one thing, God is important to us and the building's falling apart, people will believe the building. If you say one thing and the building says another, people will believe the building because that is actually actions rather than just words. So buildings can be a plus, buildings can be a minus. And Stephen goes after the Sanhedrin this way. Acts 7 verses 44 through 50. This is his apology. This is his defense saying you're accusing me of being anti-temple. Here's what I think. And these few verses, 40 through, 44 through 50, get him killed. He did a good job defending himself with the Moses accusation. And he basically says to them with the temple, you guys are right. I am anti-temple. And here's why. And the rock started to fly. So here's the passage. This is Stephen, his defense. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was a tent, a tent of meeting. In Hebrew, the Mishkan. It was positioned in the middle of the camp. Have you ever seen pictures of Burning Man from above? There's all these people camped around this place, thousands of people. And that's just plain weird, but in the... In, in Sinai, when they were traveling to the Holy Land, it was like that. They were all camped around. In the middle was the Mishkan, the place of meeting. When did they move? They moved when God told them to move. And he told them to move by moving the pillar of cloud by day or moving the pillar of fire by night. And where God went, they went. They didn't know where they were going next. Depending on what happens at this vote today, Methodist Church, we don't know where we're going next. We might be here. We might not be. We have to see what the Lord shows us. Our ancestors carried the Mishkan, the tabernacle, with them through the wilderness. It was a tent. Wendy and I have done quite a bit of tent camping. You break camp and you move on. And the Levites were the people in charge of breaking camp and setting it up again. And God gave very specific directions about how to build a tabernacle. Is it, here's, a, here's a trivia question for you Bible buffs. When was the first time that spiritual gifts were mentioned in the Bible? And I've already given you a bit of a hint. This is for Final Jeopardy. This is a big one. <laughs> Building of the tabernacle through Bezalel. Bezalel, the Holy Spirit, fell upon him and gave him giftings for building the tabernacle. And so the very first spiritual gift was craftsmanship wasn't speaking in tongues, wasn't preaching, wasn't teaching. It was craftsmanship, which is really kind of interesting. The first time spiritual gifts are mentioned in the Bible is the gift of craftsmanship. So they carried it through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses, and Bezalel executed the plan. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the promised land, which is today Israel, the tabernacle was taken with them into the promised land, into the new territory. And it stayed there, although it moved around within the promised land, until the time of King David. David found favor with God, and David asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. David said, hey, we need to build a temple because all the other nations have a temple. And when you excavate any pagan city in the ancient Near East, in general, there's a temple. There's a temple with a holy place, a temple with a holy of holies. There's the, it looks just like the Jerusalem temple. Temples were something everybody had. The tabernacle was something unique to Israel. And David says, hey, 
these other nations have temples in all of their towns. Why don't we build a temple too? Well, first of all, there's two things that are not God's plan A. One is kings. If you remember from Samuel, the people came to Samuel and says, give us a king like all the other countries. He says, oh, no, you don't want to do that. They'll tax you. They'll draft you. They'll put you in debt. They'll, they'll, they'll declare war. And your kids will die in those wars. Don't do it. Don't do it. But God relented and let them have a king. God's plan A was to have judges, not kings. And we do need judges to settle disputes. That's, that's a, if you believe in very, very, very small government, you still believe we need judges. That's important. People to settle disputes fairly and impartially. So, plan A was judges. Plan B, which God blessed anyways, was kings. Plan A was the tabernacle, the Mishkan. Plan B was a temple. God blessed it anyways, but it wasn't his plan A. We have the same thing in our country right now with sexuality. We have the same thing with all kinds of stuff. God has a plan A for sexuality. Get married, raise kids, be fruitful and multiply, and try to stay married. That's plan A as best you can. And the human race depends on that, by the way. David found favor with God and asked to build a temple, and basically God says, uh, you've got too much blood on your hands to do it. I don't want your warlordness associated with the building. Solomon in Hebrew means king of peace. Solomon never went out to war. He didn't want his temple associated with... Think about it. There was a song in the Bible. What was it? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. He didn't want the massacre king to uh, be in charge of this. And David was a great king in many ways, had a heart after the Lord, but David had a sex and violence problem. And the two came together, sex and violence, when... He killed Uriah the Hittite, and Bathsheba he took as his wife. So God says, I, I realize you've got a good heart, David, but I don't, it's really a bad, it's, uh, a bad visual for me to connect the temple with you. We don't want it to be called David's temple. We want it to be called something else. But it was Solomon who actually built it, and God did bless that as plan B. How many of you have ever not lived a plan A in God's life, and you were stuck with plan B, but God still blessed it? That's, a, that's the way life goes. You know, we make big mistakes. And God still blesses plan B, and we move forward. Then we ask, okay, God, what's the next plan A for me? We try to do... This is what the target practice is like. We try to get closer and closer to plan A as best we possibly can. However, this is what got him killed, Stephen. The Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands as the prophet, this is Isaiah, says... Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? I don't need no stinking temple, temple schmemple. <laughs> and the rocks started to fly. So he defended himself well with Moses, and he basically said, your accusation's right when it comes to the temple. It was God's plan B to start with. Are you following the storyline here? And this is what caused... What we're going to talk about next week is the execution of Stephen under the approval of the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul. Now there's tension in the Bible as to whether or not we need a meeting place, whether or not we need a place to be. Now it's natural to have a tent in a country that is based on tents. Back then, people were mostly nomads and herders. You've seen the movies where uh, they show up at the sultan's tent and there's dancing ladies and tambourines and there's big feasting and they're all lying on pillows. Well, that's kind of how they lived back then, the rich people. Not so much palaces, but they had tents. And so tent people would naturally have a tent culture and a tent gathering place. Last I checked, none of you slept in a tent last night. This is not what we do here in California. This is not how we dwell. So it doesn't have to be a tent in that sense because tents are, are not what we do as a culture. That's not the point. There's tension in the Bible as to how to meet, where to meet, whether the temple was good or bad, all of that. And I'm going to show you some of that tension. Someone in our, our men's Bible group, and if you're not a part of our men's Bible group, you need to join it if you're a guy because it's where guys talk about guy stuff. 
And some women think men don't talk much, but basically a lot of us don't talk much when there's women around when it comes down to it. So they're a lot more transparent when they're together with themselves. And one of the guys, Brian in Texas, on Monday said, here's an insight. You can tell a lot about a culture by the most expensive building in town. Is it dedicated to worship? Is it dedicated to government? Is it dedicated to education? Are there temples of learning at the university? Are the high schools the most beautiful thing in town? Is it dedicated to the marketplace? Are the skyscrapers, as you go through Irvine by the airport there, John Wayne Airport, you see the temples of commerce all over the place? Or is it dedicated towards leisure? Well, Southern California is dedicated to leisure, if you look at it. Look at our stadiums. Look at our theme parks. Look at our airports. Look at, look at what we put money into. I want to show you something striking. If an alien were to land here in Southern California and were to guess by what we built, remember once again, if you say one thing and the building says another, people believe the building. In Chart, France, is the most beautiful building in the world. Architects would agree on that. It's the, it's the cathedral in Chart. No architect. Took them hundreds of years to build it. The town never exceeded 10,000 people. Never was a wealthy city. But over time, they built this incredible church. You walk in, and to this day, you feel the presence of God. It's because it's a faith statement of these peasants who built this magnificent structure. And it's still used for worship today. You can, if the alien showed up at Chart, what would they think? God is the most important thing to them. So buildings aren't necessarily bad. You see where there's tension here that we're going to be looking at? I'm going to show you something striking. SoFi Stadium. SoFi Stadium. The Rose Bowl, which seats more than SoFi Stadium, cost $272,000 to build in 1922. In today's dollars, that's $4.1 million. In today's dollars. Accounted for inflation. It's a very simple building. Simple concrete with, you know, it's not all that complicated. SoFi Stadium was five plus billion. It's not 100% more expensive. It's not 100 times. It's 1,220 times more expensive than the Rose Bowl. Adjusted for inflation even. I'm not talking about just because the money is worth less now. So what would an alien say landing in Los Angeles? 10 to 15 years ago, a 1 billion stadium was unheard of. They built one in Texas and one in Minnesota. People thought that's insane. We went for five. I'm not saying don't build a football stadium. What I'm saying is it tells a lot about our culture. We have a culture in Southern California where leisure is the most important thing. Sports, entertainment, and traveling to our travel destinations. We're a lot like the Roman Empire in that sense. Juvenal, the great Roman orator, said, give them bread and circuses and they will never revolt. Give them entertainment and cheap food and they'll be fine. Who thinks there's some of that cynicism in our government today? Give them lots of cable and big screen TVs and, and they won't revolt. As long as they've got, you know, yeah, drive-through and donuts and everything else, uh, they'll be good. And Jesus wasn't that anti-temple, although he was a bit anti-temple. He was quoted as saying, I can tear it down and build it up in three days. Temple schmemple. He also said, we can worship anywhere in spirit and truth. You don't need a temple. Remember the woman at the well? says, uh, your people say we should be in Jerusalem, and my people say we should worship God at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, because she was a Samaritan. Worships the same God, a little different way. And Jesus says, we can worship anywhere in spirit and truth. Those days are coming. But he also said as a boy, didn't you know I should be in my father's house? He wasn't totally anti-temple. And he defended the temple against the money changers. When he put together a whip 
Jesus went Rambo and chased them out. Can you imagine the force you would have to apply to, to, to succeed at that? One time Jesus went violent over the house. So he wasn't totally anti-temple. There's tension in the Bible. People, if you're looking for an easy life, I'll just follow the Bible. Good luck. The Bible's full of tension. Can you lose your salvation? Study the Bible carefully. Yes and no. Yes and no. There's all kinds of yes and no's in the Bible. There's a lot of tension, and you guys live in that tension, and so do I. That's why we have to continue to open the Word and look at it together and keep working on our archery practice to try to get closer and closer and closer to the bullseye. And it takes a lifetime. If you're, not, if you're at the same place you were faith-wise five years ago, you're not getting closer to the bullseye. And we need to continue to be intentional about that, to go after the bullseye, which is God's plan A for your life and my life. And that takes a long time to discern. People, it is easy to get saved. If you're not saved, we can take care of that in five minutes after the service. It's hard to hit the bullseye. Let me say that again. It's easy to get saved. It's hard to hit the bullseye. But we, once we get saved, we want to try to, <laughs> we want to, try to hit the bullseye out of, out of grateful response to the Lord. We want to try to get better at that. So, Jesus in the temple. As I mentioned before, this right here is a pagan temple. Every town had one. Greece had the Acropolis, and it had the, the Parthenon right up there. Every, everybody had a temple. There's nothing special about it. God's plan A was the Mishkan, and this is what it looked like. It was a tent, a tent to bring sacrifices, to gather, to worship God, and they were a tent culture, and this worked fine. Now, Stephen's making this speech in Jerusalem. Who's writing this book? Luke. Luke is writing this book. Who is Luke's audience? Luke's audience, they're not Jews. Luke's a Gentile, and he's writing to Gentiles. And those Gentiles are meeting in house churches. And for the first 300 years of the church, people met in homes. There was no such thing as a church building before the year 300s or so when Christianity became legal. It was illegal, so they met in homes because it was quieter. And back then you could do that. Here's how they did it. First of all, they didn't build their culture around automobiles. They built it around pedestrians, so everything was close together, kind of like downtown Huntington Beach, where things are close and walkable. So everybody could walk there. So you didn't need 30 cars. To it, it, it was easy to meet. Financially, the church, the early church, studies have been done on this. People gave offerings, but they depended on one benefactor for every church, one person who would make sure the church had enough money to do what it needed to do. And benefactors were a really big deal. Frederick Danker has written a whole study on benefactors in the early church. And every church needed one, and they would recruit. We want you to be our benefactor. You're a wealthy person. You can make sure that everything is taken care of so we can focus on other things. That was one of the spiritual gifts, generosity. And here we've got a lot of benefactors, and that's what's made this church doable through all the craziness of COVID and everything else. You guys are all benefactors. You understand that. This is a very generous church. Some of you, it's one of your main spiritual gifts, and you know who you are, and you're sitting here today. So Luke's audience was house churches. And house churches in every city... There were Jews, because there were way more Jews than Christians back then. And the Jews were all over the Roman Empire, and 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And a lot of Romans became Jews because it was way more logical than their dog and pony show with all of their crazy gods and stuff. You know, Jupiter and Diana and all that stuff. It was just a big soap opera. And thinking Romans would often lay that aside and become God-fearers or Jews and would hang out at the synagogue because it was more advanced than what they were doing spiritually. So most every town had a big synagogue all built up nice. And Luke's audience, they're meeting in homes because Judaism was legal and Christianity was not. So there's the situation. He's writing to them saying, 
He's also using Stephen's speech to tell the Christians in house churches, you're doing it okay. Just because the other people have a synagogue and you don't doesn't mean you're not as important. You can worship God in spirit and truth in your homes. You can do that. You understand where the, where the incentive here for the, the right? There's a reason people write every chapter of the Bible. Nobody's just said, I'm just going to write a chapter of the Bible today. They're dealing with an issue. And Luke is dealing with an issue where all of the Christians felt like second-class citizens because the Jews had a place to be and they didn't. And so he wanted to remind them what Stephen said. And Stephen was willing to die for it. And he did. Here's something you may want to copy down. I heard this from someone and it's so spot on. The church started as a house movement that was primarily singles. Some married people, but primarily singles. As far as we know, Jesus was single. As far as we know, Paul was single. It started as a house movement in what we call Palestine, Israel, what do you want to call it? It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. In Greece, that's where they hammered out the creeds. That's where they hammered out the trinity. That's where they hammered out how salvation works. That's where they figured they created a legal description of the Christian faith called the Nicene Creed. And if you're outside of that, you're not a Christian. And if you're inside of that, you are. If you can say the Nicene Creed without crossing your fingers, then you're a Christian. And you need that, people. You need a definition for the faith. Why are the people up the street, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons not considered Christians? Because they don't use the Nicene Creed. Every Christian church of every denomination that you call Christian has the Nicene Creed somewhere in its bylaws. So it became a philosophy, a theology. And the Greeks gave us that. They thought through what it meant for Jesus to be true God and true man. They were the ones who came up with that phrase. Then it moved to Rome and became the biggest institution in the world, the Roman Church. To this day, the biggest corporation on the planet, the biggest landholder. And if you've ever been to their corporate headquarters, which is its own country, for goodness sake, Vatican City, you cross a, nat you cross a border to go from Italy to Vatican City. And it became the institution, which modeled itself after the Roman army in its hierarchy. And hierarchies, by the way, are not friendly to women. The American military and the Roman church, because they're so hierarchical, are they tend to be anti-female in leadership. And the more flat and democratic a group is, the more egalitarian it tends to be. It's all a matter of hierarchy. Men love hierarchies. You put men in a group and we'll form a hierarchy right away. And we'll be cool with that. And women are a lot more egalitarian. That's just the way that works. And so... One of the reasons we got kicked out of our denomination is we weren't hierarchical enough. So, a little less on that. Moved to Europe and became a state church. The Church of England. The Church of Sweden. My ancestors came from the Church of Norway. State church. The Church of Sweden runs the census in Sweden. The Church of England is one of the biggest landholders in the country. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, who came to faith on the Alpha Course who used to be an oil executive, will be crowning King Charles this spring. He's the only one who outranks King Charles. And he will lay the crown because he is the only one with the authority to do that because he's the head of the Church of England. State church. Most countries in Europe had a state church. The Lutheran church in America is just immigrants from the state churches. And they formed Lutheran churches because the religion, state religion of their country was Lutheran. So depending on your ethnicity, you probably grew up in a certain church, depending on whether or not you were German, Scandinavian, or Southern European, or came from a Catholic country or Protestant country. You came from Ireland, bets on you were, you were Catholic. You came from Norway, they don't even have any Catholics in Norway. So that's just, you basically were what your ancestors were as far as that goes. Now that we've been in America for a while, we've forgotten some of that. We came to North America, so we settled on the church being a nonprofit corporation, 501c3, with a board. That's how legally you can do church in America. You can have a private grouping, but you can't have an ongoing church without that. That's how you do church legally in America. We've got a board called the trustees. We've got a 501c3 number, 80-whatever it is. And we do church along with the laws of the country, the laws of the state of California. The church has gone through lots of forms. 
And in order to run a 501c3, you need a treasurer, you need a financial statement, you need all of those things, and you need to do it legally and transparently. And you need to have 40 people, 40 giving units, 40 GUs, for that to function. And this has been sociologically proven. If you've got 40 giving units, we have more than that here, you can function as a church in North America. You get below 40 giving units, and it's hard to maintain a 501c3 corporation. So these are sociological issues which are just real. Wherever you go to a certain country, there's certain things you have to pay attention to in order to make things happen. Tithing really became prominent in the United States more so than it was in Europe. Why? Because in Europe, taxes paid for the church. In Germany to this day, the church we went to in Germany when I was studying there was paid for by the government. And the pastor was paid on the civil servant scale to this day. And so it's different here where we all have to be benefactors for it to work out. And we have to have at least 40 giving units to maintain. Trust me, you go below 40 giving units and the church will start to wobble and that's, that's it. To get a trained pastor to um, have enough facilities for worship leading and those kind of things and, and public singing and witness and the kind of things churches do and to get some charity going, you need... That's what you need in America to make it work. This has been made very complicated by, this is, pay attention to this. This has a lot to do with us and the vote next door. It's been made very complicated by Euclidean zoning. Euclidean zoning after World War I has, has changed the face of this country. Euclidean zoning is when we started separating residential from industrial from commercial. You look at any neighborhood before 1920 and it's mixed use. Downtown Huntington Beach is mixed use because it's pre-1920. You have businesses and living all together. They started separating it and people started living in suburban tracts starting in 1920. Why? Because we had cars. And we started to build around automobiles. You know what the problem is? It makes it impossible to have a viable house church in a tract. Why? Because if you have 30, 40 cars showing up, your neighbors, will, your neighbors will put up with it for one or two weeks, but after that, they're calling the cops. And Kim is not a super loud worship leader, praise God, but some bands are ear-splitting. And that doesn't go over really well with the neighborhood either. We we're not built as a country to have house churches that make the 501c3 thing work. And it makes it really challenging. We need dedicated spaces and we need parking for enough cars to financially make sure the church can continue to function. Does that make any sense? And if you don't have that parking, you're in trouble. Hope Chapel downtown in Huntington Beach, they're in a pre-Euclidean area. Their biggest problem is parking. They have valet parking for everyone out in front of the church on Lake Street because there is no place for them to park. And it is a real problem if you have a church in one of those areas. Because you have to have enough parking to get enough people to make the whole thing work so that you can stay within the laws of the country and that you can continue to have an ongoing Christian presence in the group. Luke was dealing with pedestrian culture, so house churches worked. You could all walk to it and you're all close together. You could do house churches downtown, but only with downtown people because they could walk there. You. You can have a group of five or six, a half dozen people at your house forever for a Bible study. That's fine. But then you're not going to have a trained Bible teacher and you're not going to have a worship leader. And try singing with five or six people. It's pretty pathetic, especially if there's a lot of guys. We're terrible at that. Go to a men's group singing thing and just, ooh, you know, the cattle are lowing. You know, it's just bad. It's just, uh, it, you need a group this size to get singing going. We're barely big enough to have worship really take off in church. So, those are the deals, those things we're dealing with. Practicalities. If you go outside here, we have a banner. Permanent, permanent banner. On the wall here is Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. It's all about Jesus. What we have to do is we have to adapt as Christians to whatever is going on around us so we can have a place to meet. And we have to be flexible for that. 
And good Lord knows we have been flexible. This is our fifth venue. Because we want to be faithful to Jesus and we want to continue to meet, to worship, to get into the Word, to do all those kinds of things. We have to trust that Jesus will be with us no matter what the zoning laws are, no matter what the, what the sociology looks like, that we can figure this out. But you can't just fight the sociology and say, oh, I, I wish it was like the Roman Empire. It's not. We're, dealing, we're, we're, we're working in a different era with different transportation and different communication methods. We have to pay attention to that. Stay out of the gutter balls. One gutter ball is we don't need any place to meet. We'll just be a tent church, tent church. We'll be so spiritual we won't need a real place. We'll just, in our hearts, we'll gather. And what happens is people stop gathering and start watching more football and start to, you need, you need, you need to be together. <laughs> to sing, to worship, to do the things we do, to get better at archery practice. We need to gather one, one body. We need to be here in person, if at all possible. The other gutter ball is to make your church an idol. The building becomes more important than the mission. And this happens a lot in traditional churches real quickly. We can't move that we can't, do, we, can, we can't take that banner down. We can't, oh my goodness. I have pastor friends who are afraid to move the altar, to even to move it out from the wall so they can stand behind it and celebrate communion so that people can see them. And they're afraid to do it because you move something and the kitchen ladies will come get you. It's good that we don't have kitchen ladies at our church. That, uh, but they, they, if, if you cross the kitchen ladies, there will be blood and it won't be theirs. It just, we'll put it that way. It's, it's going to happen. So stay out of the gutter balls. One is saying we, we, don't need a, we don't need a gathering space, which is not true. We do need a gathering space. And the other gutter ball is we idolize the worship space and the church becomes the building, not the people. Church comes from yeah, the congregation, the word gathering. It's the people. Remember the building is a faith statement. Wendy and I were, our first church was Mount Zion Lutheran Church in Tacoma. I was an interim pastor there, and oh, did I get in trouble one Sunday. I got up in front of them and said, this carpet is horrible. None of you would have this in your church, in your home. None of you would have this carpet in your home. It, it's, there's, there's holes in it. We, I, it used to be some color, but it's kind of gray. This place doesn't look too good. You're taking better care of your own homes. Remember, the building is a faith statement. No matter how humble it is, it should look nice. It should be clean. It should be taken care of. It should have fresh paint. We need to help the Methodists with that. And the Lord should give us a chance to do that. That'd be great. You have to read the culture. We are dealing with a culture where spirituality is not the main thing in Southern California. Leisure is. I'm not saying we abdicate. I'm saying we have to, we have to look at that. If they're spending 1,200 times to build SoFi Stadium as they did to build the Rose Bowl, we've got a serious problem in our culture of priorities. Serious problem. You have to be able to read the, read the culture. What's going on here? Pay attention. Be wise. And like the tabernacle, be flexible. If God leaves his pillar of cloud above this place right here, we'll stay here. If God moves it, we'll move because we believe God will speak to us and he'll tell us what to do. And we will find a place to meet where people can park, where people can gather, where we can stay out of the rain, where the technology we have works, where we can have enough people to make praise and worship work, all those things. Commit to your body of Christ and you people that are watching on TV, this is for you. If you don't have a local church that you attend in person, find one. And if you can't find one, form one. We will help you form a church. We've got churches called wells, and we have people called well diggers, and you can be one, that can start building a home fellowship in your house. Now it's going to get to the point where it's going to be too big for your neighbors, and then they'll worry about what to do at that point. But gather in person. And if you're not there yet, move in that direction. There's something about 
being together that is super important. Be willing to see things in a fresh, new way. I'm going to do everything I can to help the Methodists maintain a Christian witness on this spot. I'm going to be there at their meeting. I hope you'll gather here to pray. But you know what? I'm willing to see things in a fresh new way if that doesn't work out. Because the Lord has promised us something. Jesus promised something. I'm going to show you the verse. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Don't be afraid, little flock. This is Jesus. For it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. The Lord will protect and guide us no matter what happens. We just have to stay flexible, stay wise, understand the big picture, and stay focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I just give you thanks for this little flock, this fun-sized flock. We give you thanks, Lord, that uh, the cloud has moved many times, and here we are, and you've blessed us with this place. I think of the people that come here because we're in this place. I think of Tim and his family and the people that have joined us here. And local, Lord, I pray for a local witness to this neighborhood. Lord, I don't want to abdicate this neighborhood to the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. I want to help reach everyone in this neighborhood, Lord. And we can do that. Lord, speak to us. If the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah, stays here, we'll stay here. If it moves, we'll move. Make us wise, Lord, to be able to read the culture and understand the way things work here. Give you thanks for Luke, Lord, who was so encouraging to little house churches by telling the story of Stephen. Give you thanks for Stephen, who was courageous to say, The temple is not your plan A. I pray for each and every person here, Lord. We're all shooting arrows every day. I pray, Lord, that your word and your Holy Spirit, the Bible and your Holy Spirit, would help us to become better archers because plan A for each of us is that bullseye for each of our lives. It takes a lifetime of practice to get better at that. It's easy to get saved, Lord. It's free. All we have to do is say yes to your son. But living out our Christian life, we need each other. We need your word. We need the Holy Spirit. We need a place to meet. We give you thanks for all the people meeting throughout the world. In big places, little places. All the different languages. We give you thanks, Lord, for the well at Wild Rose Country in Alberta for grace in the desert in Buckeye, Arizona. For the well on the way with Rob and Denise. Lord, we, we give you thanks for their flexibility. Bless their efforts to establish Christian fellowship. And Lord, we are so grateful for everything you've done for the well. Have no fear, little flock. It's your pleasure, Lord, to give us the kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Oh, oh, oh.
So Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters, the little flock in the other building. They are sheep without a shepherd. Pray that you would shepherd them today. Help them know what to say, what not to say.